Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And today we're going to be talking about Please Please Me, the debut album from The Beatles. And as we mentioned in our I Want to Hold Your Hand episode, sometimes people focus in on the latter half of the Beatles' career because there's lots of intrigue and lots of things taking a long period of time. But really, the early part of the Beatles' career is just as worthy of uh, discussion. And Please Please Me is a, a very unique album. And even if the Beatles had only done their 1963 work and then disappeared, I think we'd still be talking about them today as a, a very fantastic curiosity. Um, so Please Please Me, I'm assuming you're a fan of the album, Stephen. I am. I am. And uh, ahead of recording this, I went back and I I listened to it again um, in in its various sort of iterations, the the original uh, vinyl, the 1987 CD and the 2009 remaster. And I I was it's it's an album that I keep rediscovering. I keep forgetting just how good it is. Yeah. And I think one key reason I wanted to talk about it today uh, is that I feel Often it's written that it's the rubber soul revolver, Sgt. Pepper axis, that the Beatles became an albums act. And I don't think that's true. I think they became an albums act right at the very start. That Please Please Me, yes, it's it's technologically connected to 1963, but it's as good an album as anything. And if you kind of look at what was happening around at the same time, it is a game changer as an album. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. What What strikes me is that as you said, it's sort of of its time, but you can see it pushing past uh, what was in the charts at that time. Mm. It's also interesting because it, it's probably the, the the widest spread in terms of the variety of songs. So you've got rock and roll songs, you've got a show tune, you've got girl groups, you've got R&B. Um, and, and really what they're doing right from the beginning, which I suppose reflects their live act at the time, is they're, they're being influenced by absolutely everything that's going on around them yeah they're distilling the essence of those sort of girl group harmonies the chuck berry uh riffs and they're turning it into something new yeah um, putting their own spin on it well that is the brilliant thing about it because they're not uh being influenced by being the beatles so to speak yet they're they're kind of coming clean so the 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 expectation is a different expectation to later albums they're really just presenting themselves they haven't been sullied, if you want to say, by huge amounts of fame, by worldwide adulation yet. They are literally saying, here we are. Yeah, I think so. I think that their their interest is simply in presenting themselves. This yeah. is their first uh, sort of presentation to the public. Um, and I think, yes, to that extent, because their sort of rise was so 
meteoric. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you genuinely don't get that. Yeah. Again, they're they're not writing songs to order. They're not writing songs um, because they've got to have an American hit. This is just what they were doing at the time. Yeah. So if you kind of look at the numbers, the Please Please Me album, famously it gets said that it was recorded in a day, which isn't strictly speaking 100% true, but we'll, we'll come to that in a second. When it does come out eventually, it comes out on the 22nd of March 1963, and it gradually over the next couple of weeks gets to number one, and it gets to number one in the UK on the 5th of May 1963. And it stays there for 30 weeks, and the only thing that's big enough to replace it is the Beatles <laughs> with the Beatles when that comes out on the, the 1st of uh, December 63 their second album and then that stays there for 21 weeks so there's this one year block where the Beatles are number one with these two albums and if you you know when, when we talk about how important it is as an album if you look at the, the UK album charts at that time and you know it's important to remember that singles were massively outselling albums at that time um, but when Please Please Me gets to number one it starts this kind of three and a half year block where the only number one albums are The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan and The Sound of Music soundtrack. So, you know, for people to say that it's later when the albums kick in, that's a kind of a revolutionary change in the album charts. That these yeah, people so they, they, they get just number one. dominate. They mm. just dominate the uh, singles and album charts. Yeah. And if you look at the year before that, it's all Cliff Richard and The Shadows are taking up most of the weeks in the charts. Yeah. So it's a hugely influential album and it's worth remembering that in 1963 the Beatles were busy they played 217 gigs that year Um, they had a radio show on the BBC that uh, used to go out Tuesdays at 5pm called Pop Go the Beatles and you know they're kind of taking over from as Cliff and the Shadows had been the main leaders before that and Cliff and the Shadows are mentioned in the sleeve notes of Please Please Me it says if I look at the quote here they're the most exciting and accomplished group i.e. the Beatles are the most exciting and accomplished group to emerge since the shadows High praise High praise indeed you know and uh, (laughs) you know because everyone was waiting for a new shadows and uh, the other thing that the sleeve notes of the album say is that they have enough self-penned numbers to maintain a steady output of all original singles from now until 1975 that's kind of spooky. <laughs> 1975. Why is that spooky? That's because that's when that's when their contract their eventually <laughs> ran out. Wasn't it 76? No? 75. By end of 75. Oh, okay. Stickler for detail. Um, so, uh, so yeah, but it's, it's what, what, what's kind of quaint about that is how far away they think 1975 is. Um, yeah, I don't think that there was any similar notes on the back of Shadows Records at the time. So... As I said, it's often said that it's recorded in one day, but it, it, it's really recorded on the back of the, the two previous singles. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, there's a 14-track album. Four of the 10 tracks, uh, four of the 14 tracks are recorded in advance. And the first two are uh, Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You, um, which comes out as a single towards the end of 1962. And that pushes the need for the second follow-up single, which is um, Please Please Me Backed With. Ask me why. Ask me why. It's like, a, it's like a pop quiz. I'm being, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and what do we learn from the recording sessions of those singles? Because obviously, famously, the Love Me Do session is the one where Andy White, we have the two versions of Love mm. Me Do. So so uh, the story is, this is Ringo's uh, sort of debut uh, mm. uh, recording session uh, with, with the Beatles. And uh, he comes in very keen uh, to impress I suppose probably impressed the band as well as impress uh, George Martin. Well, it's also worth Pete, Pete Best at the previous session 
hadn't really impressed anyone and the pe- best version of Love Me Do is on Beatles Anthology, Anthology one. 1 yeah and uh, it's it's poor oh my gosh it is pretty he, poor Pete Best sounds uh, like a horse walking downstairs yeah it is a falling, terrible falling downstairs yes. there's, 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 <laughs> there, there, there's a lot of people that still have that sort of oh well you know Pete Best was a decent drummer he was he was pretty good I, I think the recorded evidence that you have there yeah. I mean, maybe maybe it's studio nerves but it really comes across that he just well this is a theory about Pete Best yeah. is that the studio he could not make it count in the studio which mm. is kind of important but is not uncommon with bands of the 60s where they would be getting session ears in and saying yeah. look do what you do on the road but in here we're going to play it in a studio way well the interesting thing going back to the very first time the Beatles were in the studio in Germany yeah. with Bart Camfort recording with Tony Sheridan yeah. it's Pete Best drumming that Camfort takes exception to mm-hmm. um, and he removes the, the, the bass drum I think yes. uh, so that Pete Best is limited you know because clearly that kind of you know can't coordinate the bass <laughs> drum and the tom toms and the cymbals so second time in the studio for Pete Best second producer to say the drummer isn't, isn't up to scratch yeah. um, so Ringo has come in he was obviously getting a lot of flack. The band were getting a lot of flack back home in Liverpool uh, from the fans. Um, he's eager to please. And uh, I think there's a story that he tells about, you know, he's sitting there with the drumsticks in his hand, plus maracas, plus a tambourine. He's trying to do all these things <laughs> at once and really just making a bit of a, a mess of that. Yeah. George Martin um, would say that he didn't know Ringo they were coming, coming in with a new drummer. Yeah. So he had already booked... Andy White on the basis that Pete Best wasn't up to scratch. Mm-hmm. They brought in a new drummer. Um, Andy White was already booked yep. for the session. Uh, Martin wasn't going to take any chances, but Ringo, I think, didn't particularly uh, cover himself in glory uh, simply by being uh, overly keen, I think. It is a curious thing, and you know, I know books have been written about the whole Pete Best situation, that you know, many other bands might have just said, well, you know, yeah. We'll just do the session drummer and Pete will stay in the band and that's that. Um, but the Beatles kind of are so, um, I know John Lennon called themselves as bastards in those days, yeah. but they were so focused and I think they'd come to a point with Pete anyway that they decided, well, this is the leverage we need. You know, we will get a new drummer. We won't try and hide it up. And I believe that any good band in history is only as good as its drummer and cometh the hour, cometh Ringo, who made the difference. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think uh, it's true to say that, that they had been thinking of getting rid of Pete yeah. for a while. I mean, yeah. he was there, I think, under sufferance. Um, <laughs> you know, his, 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 his mother provided them with a venue yeah. initially. Um, in Hamburg, he was off doing his own thing, so the other three became very tight. Um, he just was not the same personality as the rest of them. Uh, I think they, they'd been talking about this for a while. Yes. Um, he also was never, well, this is something that Mark Lewison makes quite clear in, 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 in his biography, is that he wasn't socially adept to hanging out with no. the Japage three, if no, you say. No, no. I mean, George. yes, in Hamburg, he, he sort of went off. He had a girlfriend. He yeah. went off, uh, hung out with her. The other three were kind of... Hanging with Ringo, with his and band. Hanging with Ringo yeah. and, and other musicians. Um, so I think there was that element, but I, I, you do get the very clear sense that George Martin having said this drummer isn't good enough yeah. that was the sort of final piece if not the reason for him going yeah. it provided the excuse or the pretext to say to Brian Epstein 
you, yeah. you must uh, you, you must not get rid of him. So September 62, Ringo turns up and Andy White is there as a session drummer. And we now have this thing where we have two versions of Love Me Do yeah. to compare to. And so the, the single version, which is the version that ends up on Past Masters these days, if you want yeah. to hear it, is the version where Ringo plays drums. Yes. And the Andy White version is the version that actually ends up going on to the, onto the album. album. I'm not yeah. exactly sure how they came to that switch. No, that, that, that seems to me to be counterintuitive. Yeah, that they wouldn't um, keep Ringo on the album yeah, after he proved that, himself. That, yeah, that yeah. if the single was good, if it was good enough for the single, uh, why, why not just use that version and consign the Andy White uh, to, to the shelf? And, and if you're ever forced to figure out which the difference is, the difference is the tambourine. Yeah. So in, in the Andy White version, Ringo's just tapping a tambourine and in the non forlornly in the, in the background. <laughs> yeah, you can hear his sad face yeah. slowly tapping it. And in the tambourineless version, that's Ringo on drums. So listen out for that tambourine. And then Andy White is drumming on the B side as well. PS, I, I love you. And there, Ringo is on maracas. Maracas, great maracas, great maracas, fantastic Make the song. maracas. Highlight, highlight. So the Love Me Do single begat another single, uh, which was Please Please Me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that gets recorded then in December and uh, for release in January and that's Please Please Me Back to With Ask Me Why and this time Ringo is fully on drums it is yep. the four of them recording and so as one single begets another single this second single then begets the need for an album so George Martin has a couple of ideas for the you know trying to figure out the album but his main idea is just wanting to capture them as they are the, they're, they're playing they've got a massive repertoire of songs and they're playing in the Cavern Club they're starting to play up and down the country and he w- kind of wants to capture that spirit in a bottle isn't that it? Yeah that's it so they actually visit the Cavern Yeah. Um, but uh, I think George Martin said almost immediately he walked in the door he thought this this is not going to work yeah uh you know as a venue it's it's small it's cramped uh the acoustics are terrible um he's not going to be able to get a satisfactory live recording there so that was i think abandoned fairly early doors yeah i do i, I it's one of the the lost things isn't it that we don't have a you know 61 62 recording particularly you know a decent recording yeah. of the kind of the leather clad rock and roll beatles but i i for all the kind of um, teary-eyed reminiscences about the cavern. It must have been uh, bad acoustically, or must have been a yeah. hard place to. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I suspect it's one of those things you really had to be there. Yes, um, and possibly, you know, with hindsight, it, it was more about the the emotion. Yes, uh, than the sort of uh, finesse of the musical uh, performances. Um, but still, you know, if you had a, ch- a, a choice to go back and see any gig, yeah. You know, uh, that might be that, that might be the place to go. <laughs> no, I think I think you're absolutely right. And but it, again, George Martin's kind of uh, care in this issue is one of these kind of lucky things that the Beatles have going for them. You know, they've got a very thoughtful producer. They've mm. got a very thoughtful manager. You know, there's many other managers who would just would have said, get a tape in here, yeah. get the album out next week. Let's put out something shoddy. These guys are in the top 10. Um, but George Martin is saying, you know, let's just take a week or two and gather our thoughts and do something properly, yeah. which is to all their credit. It is, I think, uh, and I think, uh, you know, I know it's a, it's a sort of the old chestnut about the fifth Beatle, but I mean, really, if they didn't have George Martin as a producer, you think just how different, uh, you know, uh, thing, things might have been. Uh, I always draw a comparison with uh, the, the, the Kinks, uh, where you've got a songwriter like Ray Davies, who is, you, you know, arguably the equal of Lennon and McCartney in, the, in, in that 60s peak. But yet the Kinks records just don't 
sound great. No, they don't. Um, or even the early Who records. Yeah, don't so, sound great. Because they don't, and the Stones the same, so until Jimmy Miller comes in with the Stones in the late 60s, they just don't sound good. It does take a lot, of, it does take time for all those people to pull up. Like you take, let's just take a sidestep to the Who, for instance. Mm. Tommy doesn't sound like it's recorded the same year as Abbey Road. No. And, uh, you know, it's only when Glyn Johns comes in for Who's Next that you get kind of a proper yeah, dynamic It's a complete sea sound. change yeah, in, yeah. In, in the sound. And yeah. again, you know, you're kind of looking at 66 and the Beatles, or the, the Kings are number one with Sunny Afternoon. Fantastic song, yeah. charming recording, but it's not as crystal clear as a no. Good Day Sunshine uh, from Revolver, which is coming out at the same time as well. So they were always, they were very lucky. The, uh, the, the, yeah, the I mean, the producer, uh, the production style and the production, the attention to detail yeah. and, and the preparedness of George Martin to yeah. work with the band, yeah. allow them to experiment and translate his ability to translate what they wanted. Mm. Um, you know, at this stage, obviously, George Martin is pretty much calling the shots in the studio. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think the producer, the production here, even even at this early stage. And he's not, he's also, like, George is producing great records for other people as well. Uh, I remember a few years ago I was listening to a compilation on this song called Shadows and Reflection, but the action came on. I went, that's mm. a fantastic song. And I look up the notes, George Martin production, yeah. you know. He, he is streets ahead of, of other people at the time. And so you think, you, we have those two songs in the can. Uh, Love Me Do and Please Please Me and Please Please Me is still a great song isn't it I mean it, it, it's, you really get that Beatles harmony thing where they create like a third note between their two voices when they're when they're singing in the choruses together or the, the verses together it is know? I mean it, it, I always thought Love Me Do is the kind of outlier that it, it doesn't really sound like anything they would do yeah. subsequently it's not really a Beatlemania style uh, prefiguring that but Please Please Me it seems to me that that is really where it starts and that's that's the song but it's a lovely 62 63 divide it is 62 start the engine 63 let's go and this is famously the song that was written as a a sort of in a ballad style uh, that kind of Roy Orbison yes style which uh, you know you would dearly love to to hear what that uh, could have been what that could have been yeah Um, you know I, I and that was that was widely known that it was written in that style even in the early 60s and I'm thinking Roy Orbison never thought, oh, I might cover that and, and do it in my own yeah. style. But Please Please Me is the song that sent Dick James uh, kind of got his antennae quivering and thought, yes. right, we're going we're gonna to form a music company, a publishing company. So that's the song that really grabbed his attention. And there was a, there's a nice little review oh, yeah. of that single. This was in the NME, and it says it's uh, a really enjoyable platter <laughs> full of beat, vigor, and vitality. No, I think you can say anything, nothing you can disagree with. And here we are, whatever, almost 60 years (laughs) later, trying to fill an hour talking about it when they've kind of uh, they've kind of nailed it. Um, So, yeah. And the other thing that I love about Please Please Me is Ringo's fills at the end. You know, like he's really announcing himself. Yeah. You know, of course, he's essential to that band. Andy White wouldn't have done something like that. And it's, you know, that's born from show work and stage work. It's he's he's he brings a character that a session drummer wouldn't bring. Yeah. Um, so they have these two singles and, and the associated B-sides in the bag. And when the album comes out, side one finishes with Please Please Me with those Ringo fills. Side two opens with Love Me Do. And the B-sides are right next to them on the album as well. But they've got ten more songs to fill. Um, so George uh, Martin arranges for them to come into uh, the studio, Abbey Road Studio 2, um, where they try and record the rest of the album in one day. And... Um, 
That's in February 1963. Uh, and they arrive at about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I think it's a bit instructive, instead of going through the album in terms of what's on the album, to kind of go through it in terms of the order they recorded things in. Because mm-hmm. the first thing they record um, that day is There's a Place. And I think There's a Place is when you end up listening to the album, even though it's the second last track on the album, it's it's a song that kind of marks them out as being ahead of other people. It's a song that says, there is a place I can go. It's my mind. Yeah. Uh, and you can think it's a love song, but actually it's quite, uh, it's got a depth to it's it deep. that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. yeah, I think so. It's quite a quite a mature uh, lyric. Yeah. Um, I think uh, supposedly the, there's a song in West Side Story, There's a Place for Us. Oh, yes. Uh, that's where the title came from. Um, Paul said, you know, it's pretty much a joint uh, composition uh, and vocal. Paul is really sort of prominent there, although John is is maybe the main author of the song. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting because obviously at the start of the day, John's voice is still uh, holding up. So they're starting with some yeah. John recordings because we'll talk about his voice going as the day goes on. Yeah, I mean he had he famously had a cold, and I think you, you think you can hear that even in this first song. Yeah, uh, there's like twelve or thir- thirteen takes uh, for this uh, to, to get this one right. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to sort of think what was in their mind when they were recording this and it was sort of taken. There was out. a place in their mind, Steve. There was a place. <laughs> can, we, can we cut that? Um, so, so, you know, they've got 13 t- passes at the first song of the day. Yeah. And you sort of think, were they thinking this is going to be a... This is going to be a slog. Thirteen seems a yeah. lot. Uh, uh, to, just looking at ten takes, yeah, yeah. They had ten takes done on that that one. But even still, yeah, to to actually, they they couldn't be going at that rate for the whole day. Um, and the thing is, you know, part of the reason we're talking about this album is to try and drive people back to listen to it again. Mm. Um, but there's a bit on, uh, you know, when they when they hit that harmony about one minute fifty seconds in, and it's my mind. The two of them, they kind of, it's one of these John and Paul, yeah, moments where it just jumps out of the speakers at you. Um, but yeah, they eventually do kind of put it down. But I think as a song, it's kind of the key to them. If you're trying to look back and say, were there any clues on the first album about where they were going to go? Well, you know, there's a place, there's a connection to turn off your mind, relax yeah. and float downstream. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, the, seed, the seeds are there. It, it, it reminds me slightly in, in, in the context of the, the lyric of uh, In My Room. Yes, uh, which is the the Brian Wilson uh, Beach Boys song. This this song, uh, there's a place got to number two in the U.S. single charts by uh, the Beatles. By the Beatles, I did not know that. Uh, they're backed with Twist and Shout. Goodness um, me, on the Tolly label. Really? Yeah. The, man, the, the the U.S. Beatles experience is a well. It's we 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 should talk about that briefly because, in a way, there is not a U.S. version per se of the Please Please Me album no there's a parallel you could say well with the Beatles is kind of meet the Beatles yeah. and you can kind of look at matches but again it's it's an album that hasn't not only is it not affected by the American experience when they record it there isn't really a parallel album I know they have the early Beatles album they, but it's a different sort of, thing it is and they sort of backtracked yes. so it was really they were the, the capital were, were going back to mine those earlier sides yeah uh, after uh, the, the, the sort of Beatlemania had hit in America, yeah. so no, there's no, there's no direct equivalent, and, and even the cover is different. So, like, yeah. we, we kind of have a, a cultural of them looking over the balcony. We have a cultural connection to that that perhaps wasn't there in the early days of uh, American um, Beatlemania. So they record "There's a Place," and then the next song they stand there, uh, they record on the day is a song called "17," which is a working title yeah. of. Uh, I saw her standing there, obviously. And this is a very new song, actually, at the time. Paul kind of writes it at the end of 62, and I think he 
figures out quite quickly that this is a, a good song. Yes, yeah. yeah. So he, he, he recalls the fact that this was written in Forthland Road in, in the living room mm-hmm. uh, of his uh, father's house. And um, Paul's idea, but he, he does sort of say, you know, it was really a bit of a co-write. Yeah. Uh, there's that uh, Lennon coming up with the, the, the she was just 17, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, never been a beauty queen. Was where the Paul's <laughs> original, never been a beauty queen. Uh, I think there were a couple of other things, you know, man, she was mean or. Yes. And then suddenly Lennon hits on this and then there's a kind of suggestive element to that. Um as well, and there's actually, uh, if we can find it, I, I, we can maybe put it on the uh, Facebook and on Twitter. That Mike McCartney, Paul's brother, mm-hmm. took a photograph of them in Fortland Road on that day, hunched over like an exercise book. So that's the song they're working on in that famous yeah. picture of the yeah. two of them, guitar to guitar, yeah. uh, where they're kind of working on that that particular song. So if we can find that, we can we can maybe put that up on uh, the other the other uh, aspect of that that I like about this song is it's. A standard. It's yes. a rock and roll standard. Yes. So right off the bat, first album, first song that, that you hear, that's become a rock and roll standard. Yeah. That's a song that other people will go to fifty years later in the way they go to Johnny Be Good or yep. you know any any number of those kind of fifties songs. But it does show. You're absolutely right, and it shows that antenna that I think they knew. Oh, we've we've written a song in 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 this idiom, and it's as good as anything else. Uh, obviously, it ends up as the opening track on the album. You know, the things we kind of take for granted about the Beatles, you know, we take for granted their counting. You know, it's their first album, yeah. their first song. One, two, three, four. And away they go. And it's very exciting. And it's, uh, you know, as I said, it sounds in, in the great tradition of a lot of Beatles songs and Paul McCartney songs. It has this thing where <laughs> where he's written a song and you feel like you've heard it before. Yeah. Because he stole the bass line from Chuck Berry. <laughs> well, there's, you, you were talking earlier on about um, you've listened to the 2009 versions and the 87 versions and all the rest. The 2009 versions, when you're talking about bass, the, the remasters that came out at, uh, in 2009 are, you know, the bass is slightly turned up. I wonder why. Yes. But you hear the bass on I Saw Her Standing There and it's a song Paul still sings in concert. And to yep. watch him play bass, yep. it's extraordinary. It is. It's absolutely phenomenal. That that that's the thing that really uh, sort of leaps out at you in in the 2009 remasters is the bass playing. Yeah. I, I mean, I hold my hand up and say, yeah, you know, even at that stage, that that very first album, McCartney's bass playing on this throughout the album, but on is just phenomenal. It is phenomenal. Um, and if if there was ever any need to justify the remastering, that's it's the bass playing. Yeah. Um, and George Martin famously he used to put he liked to put a he would be in the early days the sequencing was purely up to him mm-hmm. and he used to put a song at the start of side one which you would call a pot boy or yeah. something exciting yeah. something to get the juices going and I think nothing delivers better in that regard than I saw her standing there and it never was a single well certainly official single I'm sure it hit the charts in the US uh, but yeah. it never uh, it never was an official single no but and yet but but as I say it's it's a standard so yeah. it's 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 uh, you know Lennon famously did it with Elton John in 74 uh, yeah very uh, there's a there's a very entertaining clip of McCartney at one of the um, Princess Trust yes. concerts, and he's singing this. And Brian Adams, who you may remember, Brian Adams <laughs> had a hit. Uh, he steps forward to sing it with McCartney, yes. and the grin on his face yes. just to be standing next to McCartney and singing that song. So it's 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 become. But it's also like the the, the Elton John Thanksgiving '74 Lennon performance is great fun. It's odd to hear Lennon mm. sing it, but the other fantastic performance that's worth checking out is Last Play at Shea, where Billy Joel invites Paul McCartney on yeah. to sing I Saw Her Standing There and 
Uh, we'll put up a link to the clip. It's a fantastic thing because they're closing down Shea Stadium. They're going to demolish it. The last gig is Billy Joel. There's rumours that McCartney's going to turn out. He's got a private plane rushing him to the stadium. And the joy in the stadium, the, the, the place just erupts when yeah. McCartney walks on stage and they sing, I saw her standing there, you know? Yeah, yeah. I and thought you were going to reference the uh, Beatles induction into the Hall of Fame, which you should check that out as oh, that, well. Is that... Uh, That's where they have a stage full of people, uh, primarily Mick Jagger, um, <laughs> doing a really terrible ramshackle version. Can I... Uh, you were saying about you know the vitality of this. this yeah. Ian MacDonald has a great quote. Oh, yeah. And he says, this song called The Bluff of the chintz merchants of Denmark Street. That's fantastic. <laughs> and I thought that was that that's absolutely on the money. Well, you talk about it being a standard and you know there's some other songs that they put on the album later on, you know that we'll talk about becoming standards as well, but it it lends to this notion of they are putting top drawer material on an album, which is a format that sells less than singles, stuff that could have been singles. So of course this is a game changer for the for for, for albums in general. They record those two songs, they take a break at lunchtime and the famous story goes that instead of the Beatles taking a break at lunchtime they keep recording mm. and st- they keep rehearsing in Studio 2 while all the engineers go off for their lunch and then the second session, the afternoon session begins at 2.30 and the next song they record is A Taste of Honey which, um, you know, on the final album you know, it, it's tucked in near the end and it's probably a song that most people don't like. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I have to say, I've, I've, in my notes here, I've written lo- low point. Uh, so I, I, I think this is this is uh, uh, this using of sh- sh- show tunes doesn't really survive very long. You know, yes. you've got till there was you on 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 with the Beatles. But, yeah. Uh, Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, but they are trying to capture that. We're doing a bit of everything. Exactly, on the album. exactly. And as you say, what you've got to remember is the the, the big the, the you know the big uh, hits, the big soundtrack albums are Sound of Music, yeah. uh, South Pacific. Yeah. So show tunes for the mums and dads, for the general. You know, we haven't, I suppose, really kind of got in in the UK that distinction yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that generational distinction. Yes. Um, and to an extent, you, you know, one of my theories is that that generation gap. Yeah. Um, didn't open up as quickly as it would have done because of the Beatles. Right. Yes. Because they were consistently producing songs and albums that the teenagers liked, the young kids liked, the mm-hmm. mums and dads liked, the grannies liked. There was in the papers that the grown-ups could attach to. Well, I don't mind these Beatles, but yes, these other bands yes, are... Yes, yes, yes. So that, and this is, a, this is a prime example, but I, I have to say, uh, you know, Taste of Honey is, is definitely... Do you know, though, the connection between A Taste of Honey and Star Wars? 
Star Wars. Star Wars. No. Uh, so A Taste of Honey was first recorded by Billy D. Williams for a play in 1960. And Billy D. Williams was Lando Calrissian. <laughs> we almost got a shout out there from producer Ada <laughs> that it's Lando Calrissian. Um, and he recorded the first version because uh, ni- it was a part of a play in 1960. It was recent 61. And there was a version by a chap called Lenny Walsh in 1962, which is um, uh, the version that the Beatles probably uh took their inspiration from there's a couple of nice things about it though so even if you listen to it it has that nice tempo change where it kind of goes into this uh, swing you know it's there to give a little bit of colour to the you know it's it's not an album full of a taste of honey so I'm glad it it does its uh, function you know Ringo swings nicely through it and it has these great kind of bits of Paul double tracking himself and that's a little technological glance into the future yeah that's a little glimpse into the way Paul would want it going (laughs) forward a whole band of Pauls how exciting would that be so they get the taste of honey Dan and then next Next up to stand up to the microphone is George Harrison, who is singing another song that I think has evolved into a standard, which is Do You Want to Know a Secret? Yeah. Um, I remember when I got Please Please Me for the first time, uh, and as uh, I think I've said before, I was a kind of a kid of late 80s Beatles on CD, and I bought a lot of the later albums. So uh, Please Please Me, uh, I I bought quite late in the sequence because I was listening to Mm -hmm. all the cool, funky albums. And I remember buying Please Please Me in Dublin Airport. And I was a teenager and I listened to this on the Discman. And when it came on to Do You Want to Know a Secret, I had that wave of, oh, I didn't know this was a Beatles song. I know this song. And that's kind of how it exists. And which which person were you thinking of? Uh, I don't know. It's just just there. It was just one of those songs that was in the ether. Mm. It was like, oh, this is a a Beatles song. And it's another little song that's developed into a standard. Yeah, I think the interesting uh, thing is McCartney doesn't rate this song at all. Really? Yeah, I went back and I looked at his uh, Many Years From Now and he said this is just a hack song. Um, this is a 50-50 co-write, he says. It's just a hack song. Uh, we had to write something for George. And, and Lennon said, uh, I wrote this, or we wrote this specifically for George. It's only got three notes because George isn't the best singer in the world. But, you know, again, you start picking it apart and it's got loads of great bits. It has that... Um I, I, I don't know I'm sure there's a, me, a, a, a musical technical term for it but it has that kind of introductory, introductory melody yeah. that he does again with them here there and everywhere yep. and maybe Queenie I don't know where there's there's kind of an introductory kind of melody that doesn't get repeated in yeah. the rest of the song this, you know, yeah. and that's kind of I, I, it reminds me of things like Mario Lanza I guess and all these kind of great balladeers you yeah. know um, and, uh, it, and again, can I say yeah. number two single for Billy J. Kramer, was it or for, for them? For the Beatles. Oh, the Beatles. Yeah, the, yeah the Billy J. Kramer, uh, uh, I think, took it to number one. Yeah. Um, but in America, the Beatles version got to number two. That yeah. was on the VJ label. Well, there you go. And that's um, that's George's debut um, vocal on a, a Beatles album. And can I just say before yeah. we leave that, uh, George referenced a song by a group called The Stereos called I Really Love You. It's mm-hmm. not a song that I was familiar with. It was a hit in 1961. And he has said, if you want to know where we took this song from, go and listen to that oh, okay. earlier version. And he actually recorded a version of that in 1982 on Gone Tropo, which sounds nothing like <laughs> Do You Want to Know a Secret? I did not know that. Now I have to go off and, and listen to that. Um, so with those songs finished, they're still in their afternoon session. And the final song they record in the afternoon session is... Misery, which ends up being the second track uh, on the album and as such is uh, kind of the first time you hear Lennon sing on the album. And uh, it was originally famously written and offered to Helen Shapiro, but she didn't want to to take it. Well, she never heard it. 
Oh, did they never even made they it? Never to even made it. So, so seemingly they they were. Uh, it was just before their first UK tour, yeah, uh, which was in February 1963. They were fifth on the bill, and um, uh, they say they started it backstage, finished it at Fortland Road. Yeah, um, they gave it uh, not to Helen Shapiro, but it went sort of to her manager and to her producer, who was the infamous Nori Paramore, oh, yeah. who was the producer that George Martin had a great rivalry with. Paramore thought wasn't appropriate, misery, sad, that's not. Yes. Uh, Helen Shapiro is you know, walking back to happiness, it's all up-tempo uh, <laughs> songs. And uh, so it was rejected. And then right. someone else picked it up. Who? Kenny Lynch. Oh, yes. Um, Kenny Lynch, who was on the tour bus. He was on the tour bus. So yeah. he heard it yeah. and thought, I'll be having that. So he became the first person ever to record a cover of a Lennon and McCartney song. Tough and it was stuff. a minor, minor hit. On the same tour bus, he heard them writing. Uh, writing? Writing. <laughs> We're getting into Scouse speak here. Uh, he heard them writing. Uh, We've just lost our Liverpool audience. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. We love Liverpool. <laughs> we do love Liverpool. We do. Um, uh, the, uh, he heard them writing, I want to hold your hand, and thought, that's not that great. Yeah. So what does Kenny Lynch know? Um, if he wants to come on the podcast, where is he? Yeah, 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 because he's, he's, is Kenny Lynch on the cover of Band on the Run? He is. Ah, there you go. There you go. So he's, uh, he's all right, Kenny Lynch. He's one of those kind of TV staples I remember from the 80s. Um, so uh, that's where they, that's the last session that they record in, uh, the last song they record in the afternoon session. And then they take another break. And then the third session of the day, um, because the day would usually be broken up into sessions uh, in Abbey Road for professional musicians, was supposed to run from 7.30 till 10 p.m. And then it ends up overrunning. And we'll come to that in a sec. But the first thing that they record in the evening session, uh, they record 13 takes of Hold Me Tight. And this is one of the great lost yeah. Beatles recordings. It's really frustrating. So Hold Me Tight, it doesn't make Please Please Me. It ends up being re-recorded for With the Beatles. And it's another kind of bag of Lennon and McCartney excitement. Is it? Uh, do you not like Hold Me Tight? No. Oh no. dear. You mean on, on, on uh, With the Beatles? Yeah. No, if you've you been. But it's too slight, is it? Apart from Till There Was You, I would say that's probably my low point of, of okay. With the Beatles. Well, maybe we'll save it for our With the Beatles dissection. Heated debate. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but when they recorded on that day, they, they found it hard to nail down. They, and is that, is that missing? That's missing. They had oh, okay. plans to edit together two versions. Uh, that's what the notes suggest. But apparently the tapes are gone. Okay. So we do not have. Because uh, I, I, I was actually, about, whenever you were saying, you know, this is the uh, amazing. Lost mythical tape. Yeah. I was thinking, well, uh, how good could it be if they preferred the version that ended <laughs> up on with the Beatles? But uh, okay. well, yes, but they. Uh, so yeah, so it was a bit stop and start. Then um, the you know they still have um, four more songs to record for the album, and they've uh, they've already recorded one cover version, which was a taste of honey. But uh, the rest of the songs that they record for the day are all cover versions. So it's interesting when you kind of look at this overview that, yes, we, we buy the album and it's a mix of originals and covers. But you look at the day's recording and they're very blatantly, obviously and sensibly recording their own songs up front. And then for the evening session, they're just nailing down yeah. all the covers right at the end. And maybe some of these covers are easier to uh, to record um, because they're coming coming from the stage set, so they're literally not having to think about how they exist. So uh, they record three takes next of um, Anna, Go To Him, which is a song by Arthur Alexander. Uh, and um, then they do a, a single one take through of Boys, which is Ringo's um, uh, vocal appearance on the album. Yeah. 
Uh, now, I think Anna go to him, even though there's talk of John's voice not being great on the day. John's voice on Anna is just one of my favourite things. A, it's a great version. And I mean, I've, I've heard the Arthur Alexander uh, version. I think the Beatles probably top that. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that big kind of whoa-oh-oh-oh that he does in that is just a wonderful noise. And there's a an Elvis Costello song from many years later called Blue Chair, where he rips that off <laughs> completely. And when you hear it, it's like, oh, that's John Lennon's Anna, go to him, uh-oh-ohs. And then, as I said, they, they kind of knock through uh, boys in one take with Ringo drumming and singing. And here's what I think. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. And I also think that... You know, for all the talk of Pete Best out, Ringo in, what's going on? Just, you know, he's only been in the group for weeks, really. Four mm. months or five months at this time. And already he's Ringo of the Beatles. He has his star time yeah. Ringo moment. He's, you know, he's part of the group. He's getting his vocal in. You know, it's it's a very democratic and it's it's the right choice to make as well. It is. It's a perfect song for Ringo. He still still does it live yeah. uh, in his all-star tour. Um, and I think it's it's not perhaps technically the, mm-hmm. the best performance but it's, it just captures that live feel I think this is one of those songs on the album which really um, sort of reflects that uh, initial idea of it would be great to get a live performance and this is probably as one of the songs that gets you as close to that as possible yeah. um, It's always fun to watch him play drums and sing this song at the same this time is, This is yeah, the, 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 going crazy Yeah he, where he's just going completely nuts so yeah. you, you, could, you, can, you would get a real sense of that and uh, it's one of the one of the few songs on the album. If you listen to the sort of '87 uh, CD or the kind of mid '70s fake stereo they're tinkering with, naturally enough, his vocals and drums are on one track. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's impossible to separate the two. And it, it, it it's a very uh, it's it's a very uh, exciting. Performance. Yeah. So you know, Ringo is not like a junior partner. He has a song yeah. here. It's the christening of the Ringo song on the album. Uh, which is a feature that happens almost on every single Beatles record. And it has that great bit where he just shouts out, all right, George, <laughs> you know, this kind of notion of, again, we take it for granted, the Beatles is this kind of four-headed monster. You mm. know, it wasn't X and the Beatles. It wasn't like one of these, yep. you know, Johnny Kidd and the Pirate type things. They are a kind of a one-headed beast or four-headed beast kind of uh, uh, communicating with each other. So then there's more cover versions next. Uh, there's uh, Chains, which is a Goffin and King song, and Baby It's You, uh, which is a um, obviously a, a Bacharach and David with Williams song. Yeah. And what's interesting is it's, you know, it's early 63, and, you know, Goffin and King and Bacharach and David haven't become the big legends that we know about. No. Um, but yet, Again, the Beatles antenna is tuned into these slightly obscure songs by these people who would go on to be very, very important. I, I, I think that's that's very telling. You yeah, know, you've got an album here that's it's got Lennon, McCartney, Goffin and King, uh, Burt Bacharach. You know, that's that's a pretty impressive yes. uh, roster of of, of songwriting. And decades there. later, you kind of think, yeah, and Lennon McCartney is part of that yeah. roster as well. Yeah, yeah. Like they're, they're 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 kind of setting out their stall to be to be part of that. Uh, George uh, sings Chains. And um, Baby It's You eventually comes out as a single in the BBC version in 94. Yeah, yeah. Um, George, I mean, you know, Teen George. Uh, <laughs> this is, it's, it's not the most sort of inspiring performance, I yeah. think. I think there's a little kind of leaden. Um, it's an interesting track. Yes. Uh, well, they're, they're rattling through these songs in they're, much they're, less they're, takes. Yeah. So there's four they're, takes of Chains and three takes of Baby It's You. Baby It's You, I think, is a fantastic song. And I think it's a fantastic performance. I think maybe the BBC 
version kind of shades this one, mm. but I think this is a great. This is one of those where where uh, Ian McDonald and I part company. He refers to Baby Chew as ethereal kitsch. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, he has his moments. Ian he McDonald. has his moments, but I, I I I fundamentally disagree. I think that's that's a kind of hidden gem. There's you know. People talk about Please Please Me being recorded in one day and they record, you know, the 10 songs in one day. Do you know there was another day in 1963 where they recorded more songs in a single day that ended up on record? Do tell. Uh, It's Wednesday, the 10th of July, 1963, when they were recording at the BBC for Pop Goes the Beatles. Okay. And 12 of those recordings from that day have ended up on various versions of Life at the BBC, Volume 1 and Volume 2. So it's amazing how much they're putting putting uh, down and taking, including that other version of um, Baby It's You. So we're at 10 o'clock. The session is supposed to finish. And this is where uh, the Beatles kind of step over into legend, you know, or the myth is created. And they need one more song because you can't put out a record with 13 tracks. You have to put out a record with 14 tracks. And um, so they have one song left to record. They're running over time. They go off to the canteen and... What I like most about this famous story is that they hadn't decided what they were going to do. Like, they hadn't even turned up with a list of songs. No, no, no. They're, they're sort of deciding on the hoof. Yeah, what, 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 they're, going to, what they're going to do. So eventually somebody decides that uh, they should do Twist and Shout. And, you, you know, we recently, you know, podcasted from Abbey Road Studio 2 itself. So, uh, well, you describe then how John nails Twist and Shout. Well, this, is the, the, this was the moment when we were in Studio Two. Yeah, uh, I, I I hold my hand up and say I I kind of wandered around for the first hour <laughs> almost in a day, is not quite quite believing that I was there and not really quite appreciating um, what was going on. And um, but midway through the, the the lecture that we were attending, they they started to talk about the sound of the room, mm. and they said the best example of this is Twist and Shout, and they played uh, really the last little section uh, of of Twist and Shout, and you could hear it and we were sitting 10 feet away from where the Beatles were set up in the corner of the room diagonally opposite the control room and that was a kind of all the hair on the back of my neck was standing up that that was a spine tingling moment and it just took me right back to this record and that's really when I I, as soon as I get home that day this is the record I put on Um, so by this stage John's voice is starting to give out his cold is kicked in so he uh, uh, you know well, they'd been working for 12 hours yeah. solid, you know, yeah. and they had one chance to just get it right. I think this was it. It was, go- it was going to be such a kind of, uh, p- that song is not, you're not going to get a second chance yeah. at this. And they had been using it in their touring act as a yeah. closer. They knew it had, you know, yes, impact. power. Yeah. Impact. Um, so it's, and it's, it's, it's a radically different version to the Isley Brothers yes. version. Um, and this is, this is a song where they, it's a cover, but they absolutely made it their own. And yeah. I don't think anybody uh, thinks of the Isley Brothers version. This is, this is the definitive take. It's interesting, you, you know, the, it's always curious to look at the top streaming Beatles songs. And mm. the only, you know, so obviously George song. George song, Here Comes the Sun is number one. A lot of the songs are later songs. The only really early song that hits the top ten is Twist and Shout. Yeah. Um, and uh, that could be, I remember being in Ferris Bueller and that yeah. had a bit of an impact yeah, yeah. and all the rest. 
but uh, yeah, it's it's one that really does carry, and it's it does, it, and it's still a floor filler. You know, it, it's yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. When when you're at the disco, that's you're <laughs> you're out on the floor as soon as that um, comes on. Always at those discos. Um, but uh, so so uh, John is is drinking hot milk and sucking zoobs, zoobs, a throat uh, sweet. I don't know. Do they still make zoobs? I don't know. Can we get sponsored by zoobs? Sucking uh, a zoob is a good. Um, Name for a podcast, I think. Uh, I don't know. We <laughs> want to. We want to. That's our yes. separate podcast. Um, so he takes his shirt off. Yeah. Uh, he's gargling uh, milk, and um, we have just our producers showing us pictures of Zoobs. They still uh, exist. They still. They seem to still exist. That's uh, great. Brought to you by Zoobs. Yeah. Let's get right on that. Um, <laughs> so it's it's a live one take in the studio, and you can hear the exuberance. Yes. Uh, you can hear that they're really going for it. Yeah. Lennon said afterwards, I'm, I wasn't really singing it. I was just screaming it. Well, I have a quote from Lennon here from a 76 interview. That last song nearly killed me. My voice wasn't the same for a long time after. Every time I swallowed, it was like sandpaper. Um, I was always bitterly ashamed of it because I could sing it better than that. But now it doesn't bother me. You can hear that I'm just a frantic guy doing his best. Um, so this is... and uh, it. it, it prompted George Martin to say I, I don't know how they do it we've been recording all day the longer we go yeah. on the better they get that, now they did they did start a second take well this was the big revelation I remember yeah. when Lewis and Sessions book mm. came out in 88 was that and I, it's never leaked it's never been bootlegged but it just uh, I would hate to hear it I'm, I was just going to say I would love to I hear it I would hate to hear it I would hate to hear because then I would know you know what I like about Twist and Shout as it exists now is it's literally those moments in time it happened live. It happened at a one-off event. It managed to get captured. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't, I, I, I you don't love, need to hear that. I, I love almost, a good, yeah. I love a good box set and I love all that <laughs> other stuff, but some things don't need light, light let in on them, you know? Well, to, to, to be fair, that is the song mm. that, that really just, it suddenly hit me when we were sitting in Abbey Road. Yeah. You know, they, they played lots of other little things. We were wandering around. We were looking at, uh, you know, the pianos and the, recorders and things like that yeah but it didn't we we'd been in the studio we yeah. looked at looked down at that uh, all of that the first time it absolutely hit me what, yeah. what where we were and what was going on and what had happened in this room was hearing twist and shout and so twist and shout had been a showstopper for them it was the last song they recorded on the night it's the last song that goes on the album it's a fantastic song to put at the end of an album because often on albums, you know, songs tend to have a bit of a melancholy goodbye kind of vibe, whereas to actually end on such a raucous party song, uh, you, you know, to start with I Saw Her Standing There and to end on Twist and Shout, that's uh, that's quite a statement of intent. And so they finish recording at about, uh, you know, way after 10 o'clock at about 10.45. And even still, they don't go home. You know, the you know George Martin and everyone else in the Studio 2 control booth are kind of amazed at how this day has ended. Mm. And they all go into the control room and you know an experience that's still relatively new for the Beatles is that they have a playback of you know a a good number of the songs and they have a listen to what they're doing which again isn't the behaviour of people who are just in it for a job you know it's not like okay the session's over at 10 we're going down to the tube station we're out of here it's like you know something this is this is a happening and uh, you know they're they're, they're kind of recognising that so um 
I think it was um, Brian Epstein ended up giving it was a George Martin a lift home or something like that yeah, or Norman yeah, Smith I think a lift home yeah. um, so so the album itself you know it's recorded in February and it comes out about six weeks later at the end of March and in the interim you know the other kind of important part is the cover photograph as well yes and uh, you know it's uh, it's it's interesting to see some of the other photos that were taken on that day on the steps of Manchester Square EMI House because that's the balcony um, uh, where the photograph got taken. Um, but it was Angus McBean who was kind of their photographer at the time who yeah. ended up taking that picture. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's as good as you get for that time I, frame, I, I, you know? I think so. I mean, everything about that photograph is is sort of iconic. It's It's kind of odd that Ringo still has his 1950s teddy boy <laughs> yes, quiff. Yes, he doesn't quite he hasn't quite signed up to the mop top no. and the little, uh, memo. The, and, and the little grey streak yes. is, is, is visible but what I, what I like about the photograph is if you, if you kind of strip the uh, you know the text away from that photograph yeah. they're, they're, they're on a stairway that, the stairway is kind of stretching up, mm-hmm. you know, almost into in, infinity mm. and um, that's, that's you know, if anybody that went to school in the 60s or the 70s <laughs> or the 80s it reminds me. It reminds me of, of uh, a stairway in a school, yeah. you know, like a modern. Uh, well, it, it is modern. Yeah, yeah. We, we we don't think of this as being modern no, anymore uh, because of what came after. But this is a modern guys in a modern building. Yeah. So, and I think that's the thing. If you looked at that, if you got that in 1963, yeah, it 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 screams kind of modern future. You know, very much uh, up to, up to date. Um, it's a, it's a fantastic photograph. And Angus McBean, last minute. Uh, assignment for him, I think. Yeah, and again, it's one of these. Uh, you know, the, the 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 thing we talk about over again is Beatles serendipity. You yeah, know, just one of these moments. Let's just do this here. You know, it started. You know, it starts with this photo. The photo on the cover of Abbey Road is the same kind of serendipity. Yeah, it all just works. And, and of course, they recreate the photo in May '69. Yes. Um, um, and the, the other thing that I, I I really feel I should have known this is that the photograph on the cover of 62, 66, and yes. on the flip side of 67, 70, isn't that photograph? No, it's slightly different. It's slightly different. I, yeah. hadn't, I hadn't quite appreciated that. But apparently when they were redoing the photo that ended up on the cover of 67, 70, where they recreate the image, uh, Lennon was the most obsessed with trying to recreate Precisely. his original uh, angle, position, <laughs> how he looked, um, uh, uh, and all the rest. Um so yeah, so uh, the other, it, yes. it very it could have been. Uh, can we talk about the alternative title? Oh yes, off the Beatle track. <sighs> so it was a narrow escape. We dodged a bullet there. I think yeah. would their career ever have recovered from off the Beatle track? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, it's 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 uh, it's uh, it's interesting that it has a title track. Please please me. I suppose they're just kind of building on the. Um, uh, on the fame yeah. of the single, you know. So George, George Martin was a member of the. Uh, Zoological Society. Yes. So he writes to London Zoo. I mean, he contacts them and says, "Could could we get a photograph of them at the insect house?" And, Another um, from me. Uh, but well, the <laughs> the, the uh, Zoological Society wrote back and said, "Terribly sorry, I don't really think that's quite uh, the image for us." But he used it himself. He he yes. put out an orchestral uh, version of Beatles songs and called it "Off the Beatle Track." So at least. I've never actually listened to that. Have you listened to that? Uh, I have. Uh, well, I've, I've no. I've heard a few. <laughs> I've, I've seen it. I've heard. I've heard a few of the tracks made it onto a record store day release. But oh, yeah. I, I don't have the original. Uh, but um, from from I think it's called from Beatles to 
Bond or oh, Back that's to right. Bond yes, or something. Yes, yes. Um, so I've heard some of the tracks, but I haven't uh, I haven't listened to the whole album. So, uh, you know, that's the Please Please Me, the debut album from the Beatles. And I think, you know, if you haven't listened to it in a while, go back and dig it out and listen to it again. It is a fantastic piece and it is an album that changes albums in rock and roll as much as any other album that uh, comes out in the 60s and it, it really signifies a, a start of uh, of that era I do wonder you know with all these reissues and everything that are coming out you know could they ever do a, a please please me uh, reissue I know they have this thing we talked about before the demixing technology where they might be able to pull some things off the two track but I'm not really sure what else they could put into a please please me super no, deluxe edition I mean I, I suppose what you've got are maybe the live versions of, of songs that ended up on the album. Yeah. Maybe you, you've got those outtakes, uh, early early run-throughs, that type of thing. Mm. But uh, it's difficult to see what they would do. Although there, there, there are some... So if you... The stereo mix yeah. of Please Please Me is a different take to the mono mix of Please Please Me. Oh, oh really? Okay. Yeah, completely different take. So Lennon... Uh, messes up a lyric, a lyric right? yeah, yeah. Um, so, so even then, there were sort of I, I've never entirely understood how that could possibly happen. That yeah. you know, the, the different takes are being used for different uh, different mixes. Um, so, the, the, uh, hard to see. Maybe they could uh, fill a, an entire box set. <laughs> yeah, you know, but um, you know, you've, where there's a will, there's a way. Where there's a will, <laughs> there is a way. Um, but I agree with you. I think this is this is this is the album that that changed. Everything, not just for the Beatles, but also, as you say, changed the whole kind of charts, uh, the way the album's charts mm. functioned. Uh, quote from Mark Lewison yeah. saying, there can scarcely have been 585 more productive minutes in the history of recorded music. And I think <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a bold statement, but it's hard to maybe disagree with that. Well, again, here we are 56 yeah. years later pulling it apart and yeah. still uh, holding it up to the light. All right. So listen, our main goal is to drive you back to listen to that album one more time and let us know uh, Let us know if you have any uh, thoughts on that. So for Nothing Is Real, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And we just want to mention before we go that we are going to be recording a live episode of the Nothing Is Real podcast on November the 3rd, 2019. We're going to be doing it as part of the Dublin Beatles Festival and we'll be in Bridie's Pub in Marlborough Street in Dublin on the afternoon of November the 3rd um, recording an episode and we are planning to discuss George versus Paul. Yes, it's pretty one-sided I think. I think that'll be maybe our shortest episode Um, but we would uh, we obviously want as many people as possible in the audience so you might want to make your travel plans right now. Um, If you go onto Facebook and look up the Dublin Beatles Festival you will get some details and we will put out some links on our Twitter feed. Yes, there are are events across the entire weekend so check out the their Facebook page and yeah. come along to as many of those as you can make. Yes, including the Dublin uh, Beatles Festival Beatle Brain of Ireland quiz on the Saturday. Yes. Where myself and Stephen will be defending our title and the, well, win- the winner gets to keep the podcast. <laughs> well, I, I actually, actually, we'll not be defending our title. Well, it's a different format. They, they've mixed up the format yes. and they've reverted back to uh, an individual one-on-one. Yes. So I will be challenging you or you will... Well, no, I'll be challenging you for the uh, Yes, the be, so, so, so there's all that to look forward to. Again, so pretty one-sided. They always put a lot of effort into this festival and um, any support is uh, very welcome. And so look it up on Facebook. We'll put out some links and we'd love you to come along to the recording of our George versus Paul episode, which we will obviously record and put out at some point in the future if we don't... Uh, 
make a total embarrassment of ourselves. Or, or fall out <laughs> irreparably. <laughs> All right. Um, so that's it for now. Until the next time, please keep in touch with us. Uh, we're on Twitter at Beatles Pod. Uh, join the Facebook group. Just look for Nothing Is Real podcast on Facebook and you can join us there. Please leave a nice review in whatever uh, podcast app or, um, or format that you like to use. And, uh, and we will see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.